You guys like go-karts? Go-karts? When's the last time you went and like rode go-karts, drove go-karts? Has it been a while or is this something you guys do like often? It's been a while. Who did it in the last like month? One? Two? All right. Well, go-karts are cool. Um, and by the way, here in a, a couple months, we're going to go to K1 Speed. Um, so that's cool. I didn't even know that was a thing, but it's a thing, and you guys like it, so we're going to go. Uh, it's on the calendar. I don't remember exactly when, but make sure that you mark that down because we're going to go. Um, yeah, I like go-karts. Uh, have, have you guys ever heard of a governor? You heard of a governor before? Yeah? Well, I'm not talking about the Newsom guy, okay? I'm uh, talking about the governor on the engine of a go-kart. You guys know what I'm talking about here? Go-karts are not the only things that have governors, but uh, we'll talk about go-karts for a second. Uh, go-karts are built to go fast, right? You could go fast riding a go-kart. Well, have you guys ever been uh, to, somewhat, to, to a place not like K1 Speed, more like a, a, a kiddie-type go-kart place, and you were just really underwhelmed at how slow these go-karts were? You know what I'm talking about? You ever been there before? Well, the reason why those go-karts are so slow is because they have what's called a governor. And this governor, what it does is it keeps the go-kart from going too fast. Because the last thing that these places want are these go-karts going as fast as they can go with children on them. That'd be a disaster, right? So these governors are on the back of this, the engine, and it keeps them from going too fast. But occasionally, there's one go-kart that's a lot faster than all the rest. And it's always that one, that one kid who gets the fast go-kart, and you're like, anybody but him, right? Like, I wish anybody else, but now he's got the fast one, and he's winning all the races because just for some reason, the governor on this specific go-kart has just kind of, like, worn off a little bit, or whatever happens exactly. It, it, it's released, so this one can go a little bit faster. And so over time, as you just keep pushing the limits of this governor, they can go faster and faster to where they have to go back and readjust the governor to where it doesn't actually go as fast as it was going before that, right? That's what the governor does. Uh, Well, Christians, we have what we can call, what we're going to call right now, uh, this internal governor, okay? We have this internal governor when it comes to sin, and, and this is the, the Holy Spirit in us that convicting you of sin. We're going to call this our governor. The Holy Spirit in us convicting us of sin. We have this governor, and when you feel convicted about something, that's how you know when you should stop. When you feel conviction about some activity or something that you're doing, you go, oh, oh I'm feeling convicted. I need to stop this because this, this is sin. I need to stop. Well, just like the governor of a go-kart can be pushed, the limits can be pushed, you, you and I know that we can push the limits to our conviction. We can push the limits to this internal governor that we have. We can push it and push and push until just like these go-karts, the governor is broken. You can push the limits. You can get a little bit of the taste of whatever sin you're thinking about. And every time you come back to it, you just push a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more until finally you come to a place where you're just full-blown in sin. You're not feeling convicted. This internal governor is completely broken. And a few weeks before, you would have been appalled at what you're doing right now because you just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And your conviction started to go away. 
Well, this is a, it's a major issue. Unfortunately, this is a major issue for many people who profess faith in Christ. That the things that at one point you felt convicted about, maybe you don't feel convicted about them anymore. And it's because you just pushed and pushed the limits and went further and further into sin. And now you've come to a place where you're thinking, I can do these things. There's, it's no problem. You're not feeling conviction about it. Pushing the limits with sin, it's how you find yourself in a, a messy moral decline. And in Judges chapter 19, I want you to open up to Judges chapter 19, that's exactly where Israel has found themselves. We're going to finish the book of Judges tonight, the last three chapters, in exactly what I've described to you about pushing the limits against sin and conviction and all these things. This is what Israel has done. And specifically, we're going to look at the tribe of Benjamin tonight and see their failures. And, and they're the biggest failure of all of them, the tribe of Benjamin. They're involved in these things that generations before them, they would have been appalled at. Had their great-grandfathers and grandmothers known the things that their great-grandkids would be involved in, they would have wanted to throw up. They would have been absolutely appalled by this. But because of generations of pushing the limits, of, of just allowing themselves to partake in sin after sin after sin, they've become numb to this. They don't know God anymore. They're so far away from God that they're just like all of these other pagan nations because they just pushed and pushed and pushed. And God did exactly what he said he would do, and he handed them over to their enemies, to their sin. And this is God's judgment that we're seeing here on the Israelites, on the tribe of Benjamin. Doing what is right in their own eyes is what they've been doing this whole book what they continue to do towards the end and doing what is right in their own eyes, it has led to this complete moral collapse. This is the lowest of the low morally that, that I, I think anybody can get to. The stuff that the tribe of Benjamin, that Israel are getting involved in at this point. And at one point, God's chosen people, the chosen tribes of Israel they would have been appalled by these things, but now they're just giving themselves over to it because they pushed the limits of their sin. All right, so I want you guys to understand tonight that doing what is right in your own eyes, continuing to do that, continuing to push the limits and do what you think is best, doing what is right in your own eyes and, and pushing away conviction and, and ignoring the Holy Spirit and, and ignoring God's word, it leads to moral collapse. It leads to you doing things, being involved in things that you would have never even thought or dreamed that you'd be involved in. But because you kept pushing and pushing and pushing, you ended up here. And you don't want to end up at this place. So, of course, like we talked about last week, we have the summary statement here. Chapter 19 begins with, in those days when there was no king in Israel... So we see there's no king in Israel. They're not submitting to any king. They're not submitting to God. Problems are coming. The worst problems we've seen, here they come. So buckle up. So we meet another Levite. Just like we met a Levite last week, we have another Levite here. And we know that this Levite has a concubine. And a concubine essentially is like a step below a wife. It's like a secondary wife, right? So this is, that's not good, first of all. And so this woman, this concubine, we see, was unfaithful to the Levite. And so she runs away, and she goes to her father's house, and she's there for four months. 
And the Levite decides he's going to go to his father-in-law's house, and he's going to speak kindly, is what the Bible says, with his concubine and, and invite her back. And so he arrives to his father-in-law's house, and it says that his father-in-law was, was overjoyed to see him. He was happy to see him. And so he invites him in, and, they, and they, it says they eat, and, and, and they, their hearts are merry, and they're having a good time. And he stayed there for three days. And on that fourth day, he tries to leave with his, his concubine, and the father says, no, would you stay in a little bit longer? And he, and he gets him to eat some more food and drink some more drink, and he says, fine, whatever, I'll stay another day. And then he gets up the fifth day to leave, and the, and the father-in-law says the same thing. No, would you stay another day? Would you stay? Would you stay? And he stays until the nighttime, and then he gets frustrated, and he says, no, we're out of here. We're going to leave. And so it's dark now, and they're heading off into, to, to go home, and, and they end up, uh, they're going to stay at this place. Um, so they left the father, they're traveling home, and one of the servants, he, he tries to say that they should, uh, they should stay in this place called uh, Jebus. Uh, and the Levite, he says, we're not going to stay there because that's where foreigners live. We're not going to stay with foreigners. We're going to stay with our people. And so he turned and they went to the, this land called Gibeah and they sat in the town square in Gibeah, which is where the Benjaminites were living with these people. And so they're in the town square, and it says that no one took them in. So it was custom for you to show up in the town square of whatever city you're going to if you needed a place to stay, if you needed something. And typically you would be received by someone with hospitality. Hey, we'll take you in. You can stay with me. Do your animals need anything? Like, what do you need? Well, no one receives the Levite and his people. No, no one does this. And so already we're seeing that the Benjaminites have declined morally because what they should be doing is, is expressing hospitality, but no one does that. No one from the tribe of Benjamin does that. But then we see this old man. The Bible just describes this old man who also is a sojourner. He's not a Benjaminite. This old man approaches them and they start talking, and the Levite says, I have everything I need for my animals. I have, I have food. I have everything. All we need is somewhere to stay tonight. And he says, come with me. You can stay with me. He says, whatever you do, just do not stay in the town square. It's almost like a warning. Whatever you do, you just can't stay here. And so what we're seeing, this is kind of a foreshadowing to, okay, the Benjaminites must be really bad news. If this guy, this sojourner who's not a Benjaminite is warning these people, whatever you do, you don't want to stay out here in the town square tonight. That is bad. We're like, okay, you need to get to cover. You need to go with this guy because this, this, this is weird. Something bad could happen. So it's already preparing us for the bad that's going to come. And so they get to this old man's house, and it says that they're eating and they're being, their hearts are merry. They're having a good time. And there's a knock at the door. And it's the men of the city, the men, the Benjaminite men. It says that these are worthless fellows. And this is used in other places in the Bible. Worthless fellows means these are wicked men. These are just depraved, wicked men. And they're surrounding the house. They knock on the door and they say, bring out the man. The man that went into your house, the man who is traveling through, bring him out that we may know him. Now this word, the Hebrew word here, it, it doesn't mean know as in, hi, how are you? I want to get to know you. This word know, it, it means intimate, as in they, they want to be intimate with this man. So they're saying, bring him out. We want to know him. And so this old man, he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And he says, do not act so wickedly. And then he offers them his virgin daughter. 
Okay, so just when we're thinking like, oh yeah, this guy, like he's got some moral standards, he turns around and offers them his own daughter. We're like, what is wrong with you? What's wrong with these people? He says, take the, take the virgin daughter, and also, here, you can take this man's concubine. He offers the other dude's concubine, and the Levite, he just goes along with it. And he tells her to go outside, so he sends her outside. And so the Levite, he opens the doors. I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. So they send her outside, and it, it literally says, the Levite seized his concubine, seized her, and made her go out. So he grabs her forces her outside to these men who want to know him. And the Bible says that they knew her and they abused her all night until morning. The tribe of Benjamin, this is the lowest of the low. This is so bad. And after all night long of being abused by these men, she finds her way back to the house of the old man and she collapses at his door. And the Levite, he opens the doors the next morning to leave, and he sees her lying there, and all he says is, get up, let's be going. And the Bible says there was no answer, because she was dead. They killed her, they abused her this way, they knew her this way until she died. And so the Levite, he puts the concubine on his donkey, and they go home. But when he gets home, what the Levite does is he took a knife, and the Bible says he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And it says all who saw it said such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Such a thing has never been seen. These people are saying, we have never seen anything as horrible, as terrible as what we have seen in the land of Israel, what was done at the hands of the Benjaminites today. And now the, the, the grossness of the Levites' actions, of course that's gross, that he cut up the body and sent it around to the 12 tribes, but the, the purpose of him doing that, the grossness of that action, was to just show and kind of emphasize the grossness of what actually happened to her in the first place. So it's not justifying what he did, it's saying this is just showing us, like, this is a really, really bad thing that happened. And he's trying to show everybody exactly how bad it was. So he sends all these things out, all of her body pieces, all of her body parts, send them out. And it's clear that the depravity, the, the corruption of Israel is on full display. All of the little things that we've seen up until this point have been preparing us now for how bad it is now, at the end of this book. And specifically, we see the depravity of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin they have literally become sodomites. You guys remember Genesis chapter 19. There's a very similar story when God rescues Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. And you'll remember that the men of the city surrounded his house and they said, come out here. We, we want to know you. It was the same, same thing was happening. Now, we know that the angels came and rescued Lot and his family. And there was no rescue for the Levite's concubine here. So you see the, the contrast here. The Benjaminites, God's chosen 
people, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, they have literally become sodomites here. These events are tragic. This is tragic. I hope that we can just we can just kind of sit and understand how tragic this is. That this is what has become of one of God's 12 tribes. The fallenness of Benjamin is sad. I mean, think about it. How? How in the world? How does a tribe of Israel, one of God's chosen 12 tribes, how does this happen? How do they end up falling so far away? How does it happen that a tribe who was supposed to be set apart, those were God's instructions, they should have been set apart from the rest of the world. How does that tribe become so bad? I mean, if not, how do they actually become worse than the rest of the world in these pagan nations? Well, we know how it happened. As readers of the Bible, we've been following along the story the whole time. We, we know what's been going on. We know that Israel stopped obeying God. They just stopped. They stopped obeying Him. They stopped listening to Him. They slowly, but surely, slowly it started out, began to associate with these pagan nations. And it may have started out slow. It may have been small steps at the beginning into sin. But now, they're, they're full-blown pagans. We can trace it all the way back to the opening chapters of the book of Judges. We can trace it back to when God said, you need to move them out. You need to drive out the Canaanites, drive out the pagans. This is your land. Move in, get rid of them, take over the land. This is the land I have given you. They had one job to do, and they didn't do it. They went in. It's a slow, slow start, but they went in and they decided, we're not going to drive them all out. We're going to make them slaves. And we talked about this. It, it appeared to be victory. It appeared that they were victorious, but they were actually utter failures because they didn't listen to what God said to do. This is the first step as this slow fade is happening away from God. And this, of course, led to the Israelites marrying the pagan women which led to them worshiping their false gods, which led to Israelite children being raised to worship these false gods, which led to Israelite children being killed as a human sacrifice in worship to these false gods. That started the corruption, and that corruption has brought them all the way here to this point in chapter 19, all because at some point they decided to compromise. Here's point number one. See the danger of sinful compromise. I want you to see the danger. See the warning here. Please do not make the mistake of reading these verses, of seeing what happened, and, and just glossing over them and thinking, wow, that's a sad story. It is a sad story, but it's real. And Israel got to this point because they compromised. We need to hear that warning and we need to make sure that we do not follow and compromise. So to compromise, that means to accept standards that are lower than what is desirable. In other words, it's to make a shameful concession. 
So you, 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 you're told that this is the standard that you need to be at, this is what you need to reach, and you compromise by saying, I know you said this is where I need to be, but I'm actually going to go a little step below that, and I'm going to be fine with it. That's compromise. God said, you need to move into this land that I'm giving you. You need to drive out the pagans. That's your job. Get it done. And Israel said, we're going to compromise. Just a small little step, just seemingly innocent, but that's what they did. They compromised. So we're not going to obey you fully. We're going to begin to do what we think is right in our own eyes. And we're going to put these people to slavery so they can serve us. They think that their ideas are better than God's ideas. They probably justified it. God, wouldn't it be better if we had them as slaves to serve us? It would help us. This would be better for our, our economy. It'd be, it'd be great, right? Well, let's compromise. They knew what God's standard was, and they settled for less. And one compromise led to another. They kept pushing and pushing and pushing against God's limit and what he said, pushing against their conscience and their conviction. And now Israel is completely godless, completely unrecognizable. So tonight, what I want you to see, I want you to acknowledge, I want you to understand the dangers of compromising with sin. The more you compromise, the more numb you become to sin. The more you compromise, the less conviction you will feel. Compromise is dangerous, and you and I need to be on guard against sinful, moral compromise. So look, if you've put your trust in Jesus, the command is to live a holy life. And to lead and live a holy life, that means that your life should not be filled with habitual sin. That your life should be filled with righteousness from looking different from the world. That's the basic. That's what God said to them at the beginning. You are a holy nation set apart. Be different. And they said, we're going to settle a little bit less. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That is such an important verse. I want you to write the reference down. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Ephesians 4, 22-24. It says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Your life should not be filled with sin and habitual sin and pushing the limits to sin and compromising with sin. Your mindset, your attitude should be one of, I am going to cleanse myself from every sin, from every hint of sin, I'm going to be cleansed from it. I am a new creation. I've put my trust in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. I'm a new creation created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
And what we do as new creatures who just push and push the limits of sin is we, we just take all that God has done for us and we just essentially say, I, I want to go back. I know that you've done this for me. I know that you died for me. I know that you've saved me. I know that, but I like this lifestyle better. Look, it's no secret that the world hates godliness. The world absolutely hates Godliness. The world wants to pull you in and get you to live like they do. And if you, if you work with non-Christians or if you have friends who are not Christian, even, even like well-meaning friends like that, you've experienced this pull, haven't you? This, this pull of them trying to get you to do what they want to do. They don't understand why you won't just go out with them on the weekends. They don't understand why you don't just do the things that they do. They don't understand why, why you're trying to save yourself from marriage. They don't understand it. They want you to do what they do. Because the world hates godliness. The world hates God. The, word, the world hates God's word. So look, Christians are under constant attack. Constant attack from Satan, from the world... And we're under attack from our own sin nature. The book of James talks about we're, we're lured and we're enticed by our own nature. And what these things are trying to do, what Satan is trying to get us to do, is to compromise with sin. He's trying to get us to think to ourselves, it's not that big of a deal if I just give in a little bit. I know that God's word says to do it this way, but if I just just lower those standards a little bit, and I just get to have that little bit of fun with my friends, if I just get to experience that little bit of pleasure that, that God says I can't, if I just get to do a, a little bit, then that'll be fine. That's what Satan wants you to think. That's compromise, and that's not okay. So if Christians are going to lead holy lives, if Christians are going to stay unstained from the world, then we have to do exactly that. We have to remain distinct from the world. And you need to be, we all need to be aware of the ways that worldliness and sin can find its way into our heart. Because we just said, it's constant attack. Constant attack. This is every second of every day, sin and worldliness is trying to find its way into your heart, into my heart. And we've got to be aware that sin can get inside and grow roots and begin to choke your heart out and, and harden you until you are just numb to sin. It's dangerous. We have to be aware of this. So I think it's wise for all of us to ask this question. What kind of sin, what kinds of sin are you giving access to your heart? What kind of sin do you face every day and you open yourself up to it? Where have you made compromises with sin? What compromises have you made and little by little by little, they're chipping away at you. You're becoming more numb, more numb, and you're becoming less convicted of sin because of compromise. So I want you to think about the people that you hang out with. What kind of influence do these people have on your life? Those people that you spend most of your time with? Are you opening yourself up to sin? Are you opening your heart to sin by simply hanging out with certain people? I want you to think about the forms of entertainment that you use. 
What kinds of sin and depravity are you allowing your eyes to see? Like what movies are you watching? What TV shows are you watching? What Instagram accounts are you following? What, whatever you guys are on, what are, what are you looking at? Every day when you pull your phone out of your pocket, what are your eyes looking at? What are your ears hearing? What are you listening to? I want you to think about the activities you're involved in. Are you participating in anything that is morally, that is, that is biblically questionable? Are you involved in things that, that if, if your Christian friends, if they knew that they would question it, that they would say, wait a minute, why, what's going on with that? Are you hiding things from certain people because you know that it's questionable? I want you to think about all these areas of your life, and then I want you to ask the question, is God pleased with me here? Is God pleased with the way that I choose my friends? Is God pleased with the way that I choose to use entertainment? Is God pleased with the way that I use my time, the things that I've devoted myself to? Is he pleased with it? And if you know God's word, you know, instantly, you know what the answer to that question is. And if the answer in your head is no, he's not, then you have things to repent of. You have things that you've compromised on. And you need to lay them out before the Lord and you need to repent and realize how numb you've become to these sinful things. Listen, I know, I know, and I understand that it's uncomfortable when you hear sermons like this and, and people come after things like your friends and, and entertainment. Like, I, I, I get it. I understand. I know the conversations that you've had with people about gray areas, right? Christian freedom. Oh, I'm, I'm the stronger brother and you're the weaker brother here. I'm not convicted and you are, so I won't drag you down. Like, I know about these conversations. But we need to be really clear about something. We need, we need to be absolutely crystal clear about something tonight. There is a difference there's a huge difference between enjoying the freedom that we have in Christ and then using the freedom we have in Christ as an excuse or justification for sinful habits. All right, some people are going to say that, you know, I, I, can, I can watch movies with, you know, it's filled with depravity, sex, and nudity, and drugs, and violence, and, you know, it just doesn't really bother me, you know, it doesn't bother me, I, I, it's fine, it doesn't really affect me at all. You might say, oh, I, I have a friend who can't, just conscious, doesn't do it, but when I'm around that friend, I don't talk, I don't do it, I don't want to drag that person down, but on my own, in my own time, I'm fine, it doesn't affect me at all. Who are you kidding? You're kidding yourself. This sin and the depravity that you've opened yourself up to, it's taking root in your heart. And it's causing damage. Look, I'm not just trying to wage war against TV. I'm not saying, like, baseball bats to your TVs. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that. 
I'm saying we have to think very clearly about what are we opening ourselves up to. And I'm just choosing entertainment here as an example because I mean, we've already mentioned some other things, but it, it could be anything. I'm just trying to get you to see that compromising with sin is dangerous. That this is what Israel did. This is what the tribe of Benjamin did, and that is where it led them to. Christians can, can say things like, I'm, you know, I'm not convicted by that. So it's not a problem for me. All the while, the Bible is very, very clear on what is a sin and what is not a sin. So you, I, I don't think that you should ever be comforted by the fact that you don't feel conviction. You, you shouldn't ever look at the, the situation and think, oh, I'm not convicted by that, so I'm good. You should be terrified, if that's where you're at, about an issue that the Bible is black and white, very crystal clear on. And a lot of times we just like to hide behind the whole gray area thing and be like, man, that's tough, I don't know, when you, you just don't want to, to say the truth. The Bible is crystal clear. And we can't compromise with sin. Here's some, just some more examples, right, just to help us. Maybe it's okay, uh, you know, I, I can watch this movie, I can watch this show, it doesn't do me any harm, we talked about that one. It's fine, I, I can go this far with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. It's, it's, not, it's not sex, it's not specifically what God says to not do. So I can push the limits here and, and, and it'll be fine. Maybe you've had the thought, like, I'll do this, I'll do this one sinful thing, I'll do it this one time and then I'll stop. Oh, it'll be fun. I'll just do it one time. It's not going to be a problem after that. I, I had a really bad day. I had a really hard day today, and I know that if I do this, it'll make me feel better. I can't, I can't relax right now, so I just really need something to help me relax. Or I can't focus, and I need help focusing, so I, I do this to help me focus. Like what, Whatever it may be, I want you to see. Do, do you see the way that we make compromises with sin? I want you to see and understand. I want you right now to be thinking about your life and your heart. And I'm praying right now that the Holy Spirit is showing you where you are currently making compromises with sin so that you will know where and how to repent of your sin. Maybe just think to yourself right now, what would your 16-year-old self, if you were saved then, what, what would 16-year-old you think about what you're involved in right now? Saying that it's a gray area, I have the freedom to do this, I don't feel conviction. Would 16-year-old you be appalled by it? Maybe it's not even that far, maybe, maybe it's just a, a year, maybe it's a few months, I don't know, but you get the point. That's what happened to the tribe of Benjamin complete moral collapse because of their compromises with sin. And so Israel just continues to do what is right in their own eyes. The last two chapters, chapter 20, chapter 21, they're continuing to do this. In these last two chapters, again, it's a wild ride. So we have this, this Levite. The Levite 
takes his knife and he cuts up the woman and he sends her body parts to the 12 tribes. And then the 12 tribes, they all assemble together at this place called Mizpah. So they say, everyone needs to come together. So now all of Israel, except for Benjamin, they come together and, and like finally they're united about something because they're all appalled by the sin of the Benjaminites. So they get together at this place, and 400,000 men of the other tribes arrive, and it says that they drew the sword. And so they ask the Levite, what happened? Tell us the story. And so he recounts the story of what happened at, at Gibeah in the beginning of chapter 20. And then these men of Israel, they vow to fight Benjamin and to wipe them out. They recognize this, this is how bad Benjamin was. That these other tribes, as bad as they were, they recognize how far Benjamin has fallen, and they recognize they're just like the Canaanites, and now we have to wipe them out. And so they gather together, and they, they're going to fight Benjamin, and Benjamin is outnumbered 15 to 1. In Israel, they ask God, who will go up for us? And God answers, Judah. If you remember back in chapter one, chapter two, this, the same thing happens, and there is this, all throughout scripture, there's this continued contrast between the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And so there's three days here, there's three battles that happen. Battle number one, day number one, Israel goes to fight Benjamin, and they lose. They're outnumbering Benjamin, but they lose, and 22,000 Israelite men die. Day number two, Israel loses again. And when I say Israel, I'm saying all the other tribes except for Benjamin. Israel loses again. That's 18,000 more men of Israel. Now day three comes, and Israel, they finally win. And in this time, Israel, they decide that they are going to seek God. It says they fasted, and they gave burnt offerings, and they responded differently. And this time, they have a plan. They have this ambush that they've set up. And you can read the details about the ambush. But they have this ambush put together. They put together their plan and they defeat Benjamin. And that day, 25,100 Benjaminites were killed. But 600 of these men of Benjamin, they ran away. So almost the whole tribe, like after this battle, what Israel did is they went back into the cities that the Benjaminites were living in and they wiped out everyone. The whole tribe. Men, women, children, livestock, everything. They devoted it all to destruction. And so right now, all that's remaining is these 600 Benjaminite men who ran away. Benjamin has become completely paganized. And they're treated like Canaanites now. Deuteronomy chapter 7, you can read that. It, it's where it talks about God telling Israel to devote the Canaanites to complete destruction. And so Benjamin becomes Canaanite here, and, and they turn and they say, we're going to devote you destruction to destruction. So look, all of these battles, all of the death here, what we see is we see the seriousness of sin. We see how much God hates sin. We see how far God will go to remove sin. 
So chapter 21 comes, and we get some more insight on what happened at the assembly at Mizpah. The Israelite men that were there, they made two vows that day. And the first vow they made was that none of their daughters would marry Benjaminite men. That if any of them survived or whatever, none of their daughters would marry those men. They'd have to find wives from people outside of Israel. And then the second vow they made was that they were going to put to death any other tribe of Israel, any other group among the Israelites who didn't assemble to fight to avenge the concubine. So there's two vows that they made. And so now, after the fight, Israel, they get to a place, and now they're weeping, and they're crying because they're sad about Benjamin. They're sad because one of their tribes is almost completely extinct. And then they realize, well, without, without women, we made this vow, and if they don't have women, then they will go completely extinct. And so then they come up with a plan. You're going to see a lot of plans that they make here. And again, they're just doing what is right in their own eyes. They're making these plans. They think it's good. They think it's right, and they follow through, and it's bad news. But they come up with a plan. And they decide to go to the camp of Jabesh-Gilead, which is part of the half-tribe of Manasseh. And they went to these people because they did not come and assemble. And they did not come and fight against Benjamin. And so because of the second vow that they made, they're thinking, oh, we have a plan. We made the second vow. Let's go and let's wipe out all of their men and let's take their women and give them to Benjamin so that they have wives. And so that's what they do. They go and they attack the half-tribe of Manasseh. And the Bible says that they took 400 young virgins to be the wives of 600 Benjaminites. Well, you don't have to be great at math to see that that doesn't add up. 600 men, 400 women. And so they're going, well, this isn't enough. That was a good effort, I guess, but we still have to do something else. What else can we do? There's 200 men who don't have wives now. And so they found a loophole in their vow. Because the vow was that, these, uh, that they wouldn't give their wives or their daughters willingly to Benjamin. And so they think, okay, well now all we have to do is tell Benjamin to kidnap wives for themselves. Because they're not going willingly. If they do that, no one's breaking the vow that we made. So they go to Benjamin and they say, hey, the rest of you guys, there is a feast at Shiloh right now. And if you guys go and kidnap the women that you need, then everything will be fine. And if their fathers and brothers, if they try to fight back, you just tell them that they can't because of the vow that we made before God and they'll let you go. And that's what they do. The actual carrying out of this plan is not described. We don't have any detail. We don't have any, any ambush plan or anything. All we have is that this is what happened. This is what they did. And this lets the reader know that this action is condemned by God. That this is not okay by any means. We don't need the detail. We don't need any more detail than we already have. So God is not pleased with this. That should be obvious. And then Judges, the book of Judges ends. Chapter 21, verse 25. You guessed it. It ends like this. In those days, 
There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So these two closing chapters, I guess these three closing chapters, they show that Israel is in a really, really bad habit of doing what they want to do. We've seen it all the way through. No regard for what God would have them do. And God shows his hatred towards sin. He hates what is happening, and we see his judgment here. We see the the promise that he made at the beginning, that he stayed faithful to throughout the whole book, that he would hand them over to their oppressors, to their sin, and they would be, uh, their, their idols would be a snare to them, and their lives would be miserable. He was faithful to his word. He kept his word. And that's how the book ends. The idolatry, the disobedience was a snare to Israel. Israel entered a civil war. Thousands of Israelites died. Two tribes nearly completely wiped out. What we need to see is that God hates sin. He hates sin. Here's point number two. Never forget God's hatred of sin. It seems that part of Israel's problem with compromise was that they forgot how much God hates sin. And when I say forgot, I don't mean that they literally forgot. They knew about it, but they just didn't care. They stopped caring. They forgot that God hates sin, that he detests sin. And not only did they forget God's hatred of sin, they lost their fear of him. They lost their high view of him. They no longer had high views of God. They were now looking to all these other idols. So what we need to see, and what I want you to see, is that you need to remember every day, every moment of every day, you need to remember how much God hates sin. And keeping in mind how much God hates sin, what it should do is it should motivate you to hate sin. God says that his people need to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And if we keep in mind how much God hates sin, then it should push us and motivate us to have the same hatred for sin. And knowing what God's word says about sin, knowing what God's word says about God's judgment of sin, it should allow you, it should push you to maintain the proper fear of God to maintain this high view of God. We've got several scriptures here. Psalm 11:5 it says, "The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence." I hope that we actually see and, and, and we consider the weight of statements like this in God's word. He hates the wicked. He hates sin. Psalm 5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 
Then we have verses about God's wrath against sin, showing us how much he hates sin exactly. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 6 says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. God's anger, his hatred, his wrath towards sin is coming. Psalm 76, 7, but you, you are to be feared. Talking, the psalmist talking to God. You, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? God hates sin. And we could go on with more scripture, but you need to understand how much God hates sin. And you need to hate sin too. Whenever you're tempted to compromise... When you're tempted to, to give in a little bit, to partake in something sinful, you need to be reminded in that moment right there how much God hates what you're being tempted to do. So my question for you is this. Do you hate your sin? That's the question. Do you hate your sin? The question to ask is not, have you prayed a prayer once? Have, have, you, have you done these things? Have you checked this box to say that you're good before God? No, the question that you need to answer is, do you hate your sin? And have you repented of your sin? And have you put your trust in Jesus? And we should hate our sin so much that following the command in Colossians 3.5 should be what we desire to do, to put our sin to death. Christians should desire to do this. It's, it's hard, it's difficult. We talked about that last week. So I'm not saying that it should be easy. But what I am saying is that we should desire to put our sin to death. We should desire to become more like Jesus every single day because of how much we hate our sin. We need to call sin out for what it really is. Sometimes we can be very vague when we refer to our sin. But the Bible names our sin. Very specifically. And so we should too. In our prayers, in our confession, in our conversations with accountability, we shouldn't be so vague about what we're saying about our sin. We should call it out for what the Bible says. right? So we're not, we don't need to say things like, I'm struggling being pure. Like, no, the Bible says that's called sexual immorality. And you need to hate that sin. Maybe you say, oh, sometimes I get angry too fast. Well, the Bible says that evil desire. It calls it evil desire. Maybe you get jealous, right? You covet your neighbor. Well, the Bible calls it jealousy and coveting, but also idolatry. Maybe you say, man, sometimes I just really, I let things slip in my mouth. I just, just can't control it. Well, the Bible says that's called obscene talk and slander. You need to remember what Colossians 3, 6 says. On account of these things, on account of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. He hates that sin. And we have to follow through and put it to death. 
Reject the sin. Reject it. Put it to death. And you put it to death by putting on what honors God. I want us to understand this, okay? You put to death your sin by putting on what honors God. That's why in the same in the same verses here, in, in Colossians 3, 12 and 13, here's what Paul says we have to put on. We, we kill sin by replacing it with things like holiness and compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness and love. So he's not just saying, hey, cut it out. He's saying, stop doing those things and start doing these things. You have to take your sinful habits and the things that you have just been doing habitually and you have to repent of them and replace them with God-honoring habits. So we don't have to guess, guys. We don't have to say, okay, I've been doing this sin, now what do I do? Replace it with what honors God. Choke your sin out. Kill it by replacing it with what honors God. Put sin to death by renewing your mind through God's word, through prayer. Memorize scripture. Read the Bible. Get in the word of God. You understand me? Get in God's word. Find time every day, an immovable chunk of time in your day, and you defend it. And you say, this is my time in God's word. This is my time in prayer. I'm doing this because I love God. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to mortify my flesh. And this is how God says I do it. Stop allowing yourself to compromise with sin. Stop. Allowing yourself to do it. Cut it out. Stop. You know the compromises that you make. You know your heart. You know where you're at. You know where you are at. You know the decisions that you make. Repent. Stop compromising with sin. Now, of course, we cannot come to the end of the book of Judges without me saying this. We have seen so many of these men God raise up to judge. And another way, of course, to say the book of Judges is to say the book of saviors. So these men that God has been raising up, they're saviors, lowercase s, saviors. And, and while they do save Israel from their oppressors and, and, and they save them and things get better for a time, we know that none of these men finished the job. We know that none of these men gave Israel the the hope, the true hope, the immovable hope that they need. These saviors, these judges did not save Israel from their sin. But what these men did and what they've been doing for you and for me all along, reading through, studying this book, what they've all been doing is they've been pointing forward to the true Savior. So when we see the failings of Samson and, and, and all the guys that we read about, when we see Micah fail, and we see all of these failures, and we see all of these things, we need to say, it's all pointing us towards Christ. The true Savior, the one who can really save me from my sin, it's pointing us to Jesus Christ. And so look, if you feel like tonight, if you feel like you've been on the outside of what I've been talking about, I've been talking about compromising with sin and hating your sin, and maybe you're thinking to yourself, like, I'm, I'm not even there. I, 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 I do things that the Bible says is wrong all the time, and like, he's talking about compromise, and he's talking about hating my sin, like, I, I, don't, I don't know about this, then, then here's what you need to do. You need to understand that, that Jesus Christ is Savior. 
that Jesus Christ is Lord, and Jesus Christ is the only one who can save you from your sin. All the sins that we talk about, that, that the wrath of God is coming for, he is the only salvation you can find. And you need to find it in him. And if you haven't done it, you need to find it in him tonight. You need to repent of your sin. You need to put your trust in Jesus tonight. You know that the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Praise God, his free gift, the free gift of God that he is offering to you and me through Jesus is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. So repent of your sin, put your trust in Jesus, and you will be saved. Let's pray. God, please help us to understand the dangers of sin. Help us, now that we've been through this book, help us to understand how much you hate sin. Help us to understand what our response to sin should be, that we should, we should repent. Help us to stop compromising with our sin. God, you hate sin and we need to hate it too. But I pray that every person in this room, we, we would all repent tonight of the sin, of the compromise. We're thankful, we're so thankful beyond words that you did send the true Savior, the ultimate Savior, that Jesus, you came down for us. And you died in our place and you took God's wrath for us so that we could put our trust in you and be saved. So God, pray that everyone in this room would do that. We find salvation in you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.